You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Rebecca. The terrace is for guests only. Monsieur, the young lady will be joining me. What did you do? I'm a lady's companion. Maxim de Winter. His wife died last year and is in dire need of company. I'm Monsieur de Winter. What are you doing? Oh, you'll see. I'd like to never forget it. Come to Manly. I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Mrs. De Winter, may I present Mrs. Danvers? Welcome to Manly. Never seen a house like this. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you'd been a lady's maid. This is all very new to me. Oh, I'm sure you won't disappoint him, madam, if that's your concern. We did a lot of entertaining when the late Mrs. De Winter was alive. You can talk to me about her. I have no secrets from you. All marriages have their secrets. Has Max ever talked to you about the accident? I don't know what you're talking about. How am I supposed to know anything if you don't tell me? She's still here. Can you feel her? I'm tossing and turning all night. Rebecca. Bad dream. She was the love of his life. I wonder what she's thinking about you. Taking her husband. Using her name. He doesn't love you. I said I want the truth. You didn't know her. You know what he did. He can't go on living in that big old house with a ghost! I don't believe in ghosts. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Rebecca, and the story is as follows. A young newlywed arrives at her husband's imposing family estate on a windswept English coast and finds herself battling the shadow of his first wife, Rebecca, whose legacy lives on in the house long after her death. The film is starring Lily James, Army Hammer, and Kristen Scott Thomas. It is directed by Ben Wheatley, and it is written by Jane Goldman, Joe Shrapnel, and Anna Waterhouse. Joining me for this podcast review, I have Nicole Ackman. Hi, everyone. Dan Bayer. Last night I dreamt I went to NBP again. <laughs> Sarah Clements. Hello. <laughs> and Danilo Castro. Hi, everybody. I am asking you to review with me, you little fools. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Talking about Rebecca, not the 1940 Alfred Hitchcock film, but the 2020 Ben Wheatley film, who... I have to say, after the announcement this week of him directing The Meg 2, is amassing quite the eclectic filmography lately. So not necessarily, uh, as previously discussed when we talked about the trailer for this when it dropped, not necessarily a choice I would expect to adapt the novel again for the screen. And I want to just come right out and say this right away. I know that they have said that this is not a remake of the Alfred Hitchcock film, but I'm here to call bullshit on that. Mm-hmm. I do not think that this is a straight adaptation of the novel, and they did not reference that Hitchcock version at all. I, I think that is complete bullshit to avoid the inevitable comparisons that people have thrown at the movie anyway, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to get into that here in today's review, but... I want to hear from everybody else what they thought of this new version of Rebecca on Netflix currently to stream. Why don't we first start off with Nicole Ackman? So uh, as some listeners might know, I read Rebecca earlier this year to do the Next Best Adaptation podcast on it. And I really love this novel. And I also really love the 1940 Hitchcock film. In many ways, I think the new film is a better adaptation of the novel in that it includes a lot of things that the Hitchcock film is lacking, namely the focus on class um, and how it largely is a story about a young girl trying to fit into the upper class. Uh, I am probably this film's like biggest fan, which is not to say that I think it's a great movie, but there's a lot in it that I like. Um, in particular, the score, the costumes, things like that. Um, 
obviously it has some flaws and I don't think it it has any sort of that veneer of great film that the previous uh film of Rebecca has but I'm excited to talk about it because I actually do think there's a great deal of good in this film okay all right let's hear next from Danilo Castro um I'm a big fan of the original Rebecca I think it's really good I I wouldn't say it's among Hitchcock's best but it's definitely you know sort of uh, it's, it's a movie worth its its reputation and I mean, like most people when it comes to any, like you mentioned, it's not technically a remake, but like most people approaching a remake of a Hitchcock movie, I was skeptical. And frankly, none of my concerns were sort of eased by watching the movie. Not a big fan of this. I mean, I think Nicole makes some good points in terms of like changes that were made or uh, elements that were more fleshed out that I appreciated. But overall, I, I, I do think this is... Not very good, but I'm going to save my specific critiques for later on. All righty. Sarah Clements. I think, I mean, I think your enjoyment of the film will depend on how you view or feel about the original. Like for me, I think it's a masterpiece. So obviously I went into this and I spent like the entire movie going like, this ain't right. Like what is going on? Like it just didn't, it was just, I don't know. It felt really... I don't know if unnatural is the word, but it just it felt weird watching Army Hammer play Laurence Olivier's role and Lily James playing, you know, Joan Fontaine's role. And like I didn't I mean, I didn't hate it. I've seen much worse films than this, but um, like there were quite a few things I liked, like as um, Nicole said, it stuck to the book um, quite a bit more. But overall, like it almost feels like I don't know if this will be really dramatic, but like sacrilegious. <laughs> Like, I, I just don't think too. it's a film that should be touched, you know? Sure. I mean, this is a Best Picture Oscar winner. And personally, in my mind, I think any film that wins the Oscar for Best Picture should never be remade. That's just me. <laughs> Ooh, that's a tight story. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm actually standing by that. <laughs> so, exactly. I mean... We also got that Ben-Hur remake a little while ago, didn't we? <laughs> or did you all forget about that as well? That I have no <laughs> clue what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that is like a rule of thumb for me right now. I'm putting my foot down on this. Don't touch Best Picture Oscar winners, people. Please don't. All right. Dan Bear, let's hear from you. Okay, um, let's start off this Saturday. You know, they say Saturday night's all right for fighting, but Sunday mo- Saturday morning is too. Um, it is definitively not a remake of the Alfred Hitchcock movie. It is an adaptation <sighs> of the same material. Come on. Naturally, oh, because, it is, because it is adapting the same material and because the original movie is so well-known and so well-loved, it is going to be in conversation with that film and have many elements that are similar and many um, shots and motifs, etc., that it will call back to the original film. And I think that's true of any film that is adapting a similar source or being an outright remake. But this is, for me, different enough from the 1940 Hitchcock version that I would not call it a remake ever. Um, it is an adaptation of different source material. And as an adaptation, I actually think it's maybe a better adaptation of the Du Maurier novel, which I also read for the next best adaptation uh, thing with Nicole, um, than the Hitchcock film. Although, as a film, <laughs> it's not quite as good as the Hitchcock. Um, I, I, for one, am not the biggest fan of Hitchcock's Rebecca. I think it's good, but I don't think it's a masterpiece. I don't think it's sacrosanct. Um, I, and especially after reading the novel, I thought, you know what? I can see another version of this movie that is very different. Um, I, I, at the time I was specifically thinking of a Julian Fellows adaptation because there is so much upstairs, downstairs, 
class uh, conflict things that he tends to do rather well. Um, and this movie, this uh, Ben Wheatley adaptation does, I think, go a lot more into that, a, a lot more than Hitchcock ever cared about. Um, and those were the parts of the movie that I found best executed and most interesting. Um, the other thing that I really liked about this movie is that it managed to give um, the second Mrs. De Winter, the character who has no name, um, <laughs> an actual character. It managed <laughs> to give her some agency, especially in the last uh, third or so of the film that she absolutely does not have in the 1940 film and has, um, I would argue less of in the novel than here. But I think that that is, uh, a massive feat of adaptation. And for that and the, um, production design and costume design and score, I am very much here for this, for this version. So I've seen now Ben Wheatley's, Rebecca three times, actually, believe it or not. First time I watched it, I watched it under bad circumstances and it was not a good viewing experience for me. And so I kind of like don't count that first time. Second time, watched it in full. And my immediate reaction to it was, oh, that actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. My initial feeling heading into this movie based on the film's marketing was that this was going to be like Fifty Shades of Grey level bad in, in some cases. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that it did uh, adapt the novel uh, pretty well. I listened to uh, Dan, Nicole and a few others on that um, podcast review of the original novel and also revisited the original uh, Alfred Hitchcock film, which you know, if you read up on it, they really, really stuck to the novel as much as they possibly could, considering uh, some of the filmmaking that they had in place at the time of uh, restrictions that they had for the, on the filmmaking during that time. So it's kind of inevitable that there would be lines of dialogue, uh, actual plot developments. And, you know, it, it, the two, you know, really do parallel each other pretty closely. And then there are these brief moments where they do differ. And we'll get into those specifics, I guess, in a little bit here in terms of making those comparisons. But this third and latest rewatch for me, I have to admit that my appreciation for it waned ever so slightly now because after the initial reaction of, oh, okay, that wasn't a dumpster fire. Now my reaction is, why? Why did Ben Wheatley feel that he had to do this? What was the message that was trying to be conveyed that I and, you know, this could also be because of the times that we're living in right now, the types of movies that are coming out around this period, specifically when this movie is being released so it feels to me like every film I watch right now has to serve either two, one of two purposes. Either it needs to be a full-fledged awards contender, or it needs to be something very, very vital and urgent and politically relevant right now. And Rebecca, to me, is neither one of those things. Instead, it's just Ben Wheatley flexing some muscles, trying to adapt uh, this novel again. And I'm sorry, I'm going to just say for the record, I think he really is remaking... Um, you know, the original uh, Rebecca here as well. But to what end? Is it just so that it gives an excuse for Nicole to see a lot of the things that she likes to see on camera? I, I don't I don't understand what the purpose of remaking this particular film was. I mean, for me, the purpose of this film is that it's been, what, 80 years since the original you know, Hitchcock or Becca was made and we no longer have the Hayes Code. Um, so there are things that are cut out of that film, fairly vital plot points or a fairly vital plot point that isn't allowed to be fully explored in it that 80 years later, no one's going to tell you you can't do. Um, and, you know, I do think that he incorporates some different things from the novel that aren't really in the first one, particularly kind of the commentary on class, sort of this upstairs-downstairs feel that's very present in the novel. Um, 
You didn't get that from the Hitchcock version? Not nearly as much as I do from this version. No, not nearly. I'll agree that it, it, this movie goes deeper into it, but I always got the theme at least. I think I think this it's just much deeper in this version, um, and you feel it a lot more strongly, which is, again, something that's like a lot closer to the actual novel. Um, I think there's other things that are pulled through from the novel in this new version that aren't as much in the Hitchcock. Um Obviously, both movies also have places where they differ from the novel as well. But I don't know. To me, that amount of time passing is, you know, Rebecca is a popular novel. It has remained popular since it first was released in, what, 38? Um, there's a very popular uh, musical in Europe based off of it. So it's, you know, it's it's a property that people still care about. So that, to me, is kind of reason enough. There have been a couple of miniseries uh, adapted from the novel. Um, I don't think that Ben Bleatley was trying to remake Hitchcock's Rebecca. I think that obviously there are those parallels because there is dialogue drawn straight from the novel because it is the same story. Um, but to me, it's, it's pretty clear that, you know, he was adapting the book. Um, and obviously you were always going to have comparisons between the two in the same way that, you know, there's always going to be comparisons whenever you are working from the same source material. Um, but I, to me, it doesn't feel like a remake of the Hitchcock movie, but a new adaptation of the novel. I think the themes yeah. that uh, you were just mentioning, Nicole, I, I get, I get that. And I agree with that. Things are more implicit here where they were more sort of uh, implied in the Hitchcock version. I guess I just think for me that, the execution of these things while good on paper, I don't think Ben Wheatley does a very good job of implementing them in a way that makes this version interesting on its own. You know, I think that the the movie works best when you're noticing the differences and sort of comparing them and contrasting them with the original. On its own, I don't know if it's enough to hold one's attention, at least for Oh, me. I will readily admit that I don't think Ben Wheatley was the right choice for this movie. Um, I think another director <laughs> could have done a lot better job, but yeah. I would defend this movie's right to exist to the end. Like if if we had gotten the Julian Fellows adaptation of Rebecca or, you know, even a, a Joe Wright adaptation of Rebecca, which would have probably yeah. started here oh, nightly. Oh, man. Um, I think so often about how much I wish Joe Wright had done this because I think that, you know, he's very good at all the things that I would want in a new Rebecca movie. Mm -hmm. Um and then we would have also probably had Kira Knightley, uh, <laughs> which is also a thing I look for in a film. Um, but, you know, I will defend its right to exist, even if I'm not sure that, like, this is the version specifically that needed to exist, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, that that's pretty much how I feel about it, Nicole. Everything you said, cosine. <laughs> I can concede with you that this is not the version of it that I want to exist <laughs> but i'm gonna stand by that best picture winners should not be remade not a remake it's not a remake i have to agree with matt <laughs> now i'm gonna tell you why i think it is a remake really quick what is the most iconic scene from rebecca from the 1940 rebecca the fire Anyone else? Because that's because that's not what I was thinking. Oh, I was <laughs> shot at Mrs. Danvers in the fire. It has to be. Sorry. Yeah. No, uh, I, I was thinking of the the memorable still of um, Mrs. De Winter in the uh, window oh, with, with Mrs. Mrs. Danvers. Danvers. Oh, that yeah, behind her. There. Okay. That's like the image that is most often used when talking about the uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, version of Rebecca. It's like the the famous still of the movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. I'm watching this scene in this version and it's shot for shot, pretty much almost playing out exactly the same way. The opening of the movie on Manderley is also the like almost exactly the same as it is in the Alfred Hitchcock uh, version as well. The R, uh, the production design of the R on the pillow for Rebecca's name is virtually identical. Uh, no, the R in the Hitchcock version is so much less florid than it is here. Here it's actual cursive handwriting. <sighs> Sorry, I will fight you on that one. <laughs> like, all right, because I just rewatched the the I just rewatched it, and to me, it's it stood out. That's one of the things that I don't like about the Hitchcock version. But then again, I also like you know definitely acknowledge because it has been you know said 
uh, that the Alfred Hitchcock version was a very, very strict adaptation of the novel in a lot of ways. And uh, David O. Selznick uh, did not want any changes to the script that Alfred Hitchcock wanted to make at the time. And this is a more definitive adaptation of the novel. I will give you that. Uh, So in that regard, it doesn't surprise me that there are scenes that play out in exactly like the same manner, like beat for beat. It's not a shot for shot remake. It's also it's a fairly descriptive novel. So like things like that opening sequence, Mm -hmm. um, you can very easily tell how like no matter, you know, if you'd seen the Hitchcock or not, if you read that scene in the book and then you went to make a movie you'd make about the same scene unless you were trying to make some radically different version of rebecca which it's very clear ben wheatley isn't trying to radically reimagine this story the only thing that i think is radically different and and, uh, actually no i'll I'll rephrase that (laughs) it's different not radically different is the ending yeah Mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah well That's a thing. Look, choices were made. Choices were <laughs> yeah. made. It should have the... ended with Kristen, you know, and then not. It shouldn't have ended with, you know, Army and Lily, like, making I out. actually like that. the very ending of this movie because it does kind of throw back to the novel that there is this weird sense of unease that they just kind of, like, go on living their life mm-hmm. after everything that's yeah. happened. Like, they kind of get away with what they've done. That actually like, is the whole first act of the novel is their life yeah. abroad and how awkward and weird it is. And I definitely got awkward and weird. <laughs> yeah. it, it, you know what? The, it, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to make this sound very juvenile, but this a whole story is just one big telling of somebody who can't get over his ex. For different reasons than we think at first. I mean, yeah. In the broad sense, absolutely, yeah. And in a way, you know, she is trying to obviously live up to uh, his memory of her. And, you know, it's all about, like, I I will agree that the movie does a really good job of getting us in the headspace of Mrs. DeWinter, of trying to rise to the level of uh, Rebecca and really trying to, uh, you know, really cement herself in a world that is... Uh, quite new to her and she doesn't fully belong there and I agree that that there is both a relationship angle in terms of um, her connection to Maxim and then also uh, with the with the class uh, structure and the two are directly parallel to each other and I I do like that aspect of the story Uh, but in the end you know that ending for me the reason why I just kind of like it left me feeling very, very uh, not uncomfortable, but just like deeply unsatisfied because at the end of it all, all I could think of was like, oh, well, I guess the sex will be better now. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that in some ways you are supposed to understand that like the thing that was standing in between the two of them the whole time wasn't necessarily Rebecca, but more Manderly itself, more this lifestyle and this commitment that maxim like any englishman of his station has to the family name the family home the estate um and with that removed the relationship is radically altered i'll also give ben wheatley this he does a really good job in my opinion of actually setting up the relationship between army hammer and lily james in the first act in the movie to the point that I really did actually buy them falling in love. And I thought that they had better chemistry together than I was expecting. And a large part of that is because I know we talked a lot about Army Hammer before seeing the movie as uh, Maxim De Winter and how he was possibly like not right for this role. But after seeing the movie and seeing him perform in it, mm-hmm. while I do agree that he is probably um, of the main trio, the weakest of the three, I didn't think he gave a bad performance by any means. And he actually surprised me with how well a lot of the reasons why you would cast Army Hammer actually did work well for this character. I was so shocked. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was the biggest, you know, person out there saying, like, he is not right for this role. And I still think there are other actors I would have rather seen in the role. Um, Particularly, I do think that removing the age gap between the two of them does weird things to the relationship. But... 
Army Hammer was so much better than I thought he might be. Um, my biggest my biggest complaint is the fact that he re wears that freaking mustard colored suit. Oh no, I love times. it! Come on, I would love it just, once. Why is he, a man? He has man, a closet full of them. Why is a man of his wealth wearing that one mustard color suit <laughs> over and over? It's not even the suit over itself that bothers over me. So many it's times. the fact that he wears it like so many scenes in a row. I'm like, are you trying to tell me Maxim de Winter doesn't own another suit? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, the Maxim I know would not even wear a yellow suit. Like, yeah, yeah. Definitely. But with that said, I really, really like the striking visual design of that suit along with the overall uh, aesthetic of the movie. Oh, so I really think that the costumes, production design, and to a certain extent, the cinematography, I don't think the cinematography is like jaw-dropping, but I will definitely concede that the movie is certainly really beautiful to look at. There is one shot of the cinematography that I've watched it twice now and it floored me both times and it's in that opening section, which I do think is the strongest part of the movie is sort of the, the Monte Carlo section. Whenever... Uh, the second, the future second Mrs. DeWinter at this point is hearing Mrs. Van Hopper and her friends talk about her. And there's that shot of her with like the one line of light, like through the doorway. Um, yeah. That both times I've watched it has like really blown me away. Cause I think it does a very good job in setting up this character. Um, but yeah, I, aside from the mustard colored suit, which like I do have a, the mental image of like Laurence Olivier in that suit is really funny to me, um, which I think shows why <laughs> should not wear that suit. But that aside, I love the design of this movie. I love the costumes. I love how much the costumes do to make you feel the distance between the second Mrs. De Winter and the other characters of her social status. Like, yes. oh, absolutely, she is wealthy. She feels so middle class. Um, which is so right, but also like the production design of it. Um, in particular, again, the Monte Carlo scenes are gorgeous, and like the design of Rebecca's suite. Um, oh, that's so my, my like one of my favorite parts. When so they opened the door, I was like, ah. oh my god! <laughs> it legitimately reminded me of Beauty and the Beast, actually. The West yeah. Wing, even. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the latest Beauty and the Beast, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who would? Another remake that should never have happened. Um, but Very different remake. I also, you know, not just from a visual standpoint, but I mean, maybe, and I probably should not have been surprised by this, but I really dug Clint Manziel's score for this movie, too. I love yeah, the score so, so much. It's so good. And like I said, I shouldn't be surprised because it's Clint Manziel and he always turns in excellent work. But for some reason, I just maybe it was because of my overall expectation for this movie on the whole that I just didn't expect that that score would stand out. But no, I'm listening to it. and I'm like, oh, I'm adding that to the iTunes uh, playlist pretty soon now. Like that sounded great. And so I, I really think that the score does a great job of. The foreboding, brooding, ghost-like nature of the movie and just providing a bit of atmosphere while also having uh, some melodic piano parts, um, some really haunting strings at times. And I think, like, you know, for me, the part where it actually, like, really, really, really comes alive the, the best is uh, with the uh, opening shot of the hair in the water and then coming back to that later, like... I really got this haunting sense from the movie, um, mostly provided uh, by the visuals and Manziel's score, like coming together there. And it was like the one single element of that change to the ending that I actually did enjoy because in the original uh, Hitchcock version, you know, she, 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 the house collapses on her. She burns up in the fire. The uh, camera zooms in on the R on the pillow, and the whole thing just goes up in flames, right? And while I didn't really like the Army Ammer, Lily James bit at the very, very end, I, I did like the change with uh, Kristen Scott Thomas actually drowning herself mm -hmm. in the water. Because to me, mm. the same message came across in that it was about her relationship to Rebecca. Whereas in the original Hitchcock, you know, you only get this sense. I mean, you do get a sense of both her connection to Manderly 
and Rebecca. Mm-hmm. But in this one, it, it felt like it was more tied to just Rebecca and the burning of Manderley was, a, a, you know, just a huge fuck you to everyone else anyway. Hey, hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, I um, I was not sure how I felt about that last scene between Danvers and the second Mrs. DeWinter. Um, I think for me it worked better in theory than in practice. I agree. <laughs> I it, it didn't have the same, especially like that last shot of her drowning in the water. It does not have. It, it didn't. It didn't move me. It didn't have any sort of power over me. Oh, see, I I felt the power in that. I, yeah, I have, I'm I'm with Matt on this one. I really liked that change. I also like that you get to see that as much as uh you know our protagonist, the second Mrs. De Winter, has um sort of done by this point in the movie as much as maybe her morals have come into question she does still want to help her like that that hasn't been completely taken out of her um which i think is an interesting dynamic there um and you you still i don't know i i like that as opposed to the first one uh mrs danvers does get sort of an opportunity to state her issues if you will um a little bit more explicitly um and make that clearer like matt was saying which i i appreciate it i don't know i i have very mixed feelings on that part of it whereas i really like the very end um because of the fact that it does tie back to the fact that the whole film is told technically like in retrospect yeah um which also makes sense why there are those short bits of like out of sequence scenes. But I don't know. I have very mixed feelings on it, but it doesn't like bother me overall. And I like the idea of it. Yeah. That's um, like I just don't same. know that I would have executed it that way. Yeah. That's the same thing that I have. Like, I don't, I don't hate it. I, I just don't, it feels, I guess it sort of, <laughs> this is going to be weird, but it feels like unresolved. Like, even though it's about, Denver's you know, like stating making her final case and stating her final love for Rebecca. It it did there was something about it that didn't feel quite right. It it didn't work for me fully. I, I don't think it's bad, but it, I mean, I guess that scene sort of crystallizes my response to this movie in miniature. Like <laughs> it's not bad. I don't love it. But it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Wright could have done it better. (laughs) Joe Wright could have done it better. The scene for me that didn't work in the original and doesn't work here. And I think it's mostly because it just feels like we're watching a different movie all of a sudden is when we get to the court proceedings. Yeah. In the murder of uh, Rebecca. I'll say I think it worked better for me here than it did in the Hitchcock version because this whole movie has more of that. Uh romance novel melodrama and they really seem to play up those elements 
in the courtroom scenes. Like they went there in terms of tone. Also, too, Sam Riley showed up, and I immediately had to knock points off the movie. I was gonna say, like, you just don't like Sam. You just don't like. like I I hate the way he talks. I just don't like him at all. He was so so perfect perfect for this role. Yeah. I like, think he's very suited what? to the period. And the yeah, I know. I agree with that, but I just don't think he's a good he actor. He's such a deliciously slimy character, and he does it so well. Like that scene on the horse, I was literally oh like God. recoiling in exactly the right way. Yeah, I, I, I thought whenever he was cast that he was right for the role, but seeing him in it, I was like, oh, you're really right for this role. <laughs> he did I not agree. I thought away. he was one of the few bright spots acting wise for me. Really? Oh, wow. Like, he knows exactly who he's playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's lascivious without being mustache twirling. Though he has a mustache. Exactly. <laughs> we're all we're right up to the point, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't believe Rebecca, like, fucked her cousin. Right? <laughs> I mean, at the time, though, like... <laughs> I, mean, I don't that's know. That's what those English aristocrats did back then. Yep. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. She also really didn't love Maxim, you know? And so... Yeah, but... I think that there is also a very interesting element going back to the relationship between uh, Danvers and Rebecca and that Rebecca, because she is this aristocrat who literally does whatever she wants fucks anybody she wants, you know, probably bosses around the staff. I don't know. Whatever she does, you know, she does it her way. Mrs. Danvers is not Mrs. DeWinter. And there's this sense that Mrs. Danvers wishes that she could be the head of that household, like the true head of that household. So it's like she's living vicariously through Rebecca and how as a woman during this time period, like Rebecca is a symbol of power that Danvers cannot have, but she so desperately wants to have. Yeah, and that is something that I all due respect to the fantastic Judith Anderson did not get in the Hitchcock version. (laughs) I think that in the Hitchcock version, Judith Anderson veers a little bit towards like evil caricature. Yeah. Um, whereas Kristen Scott Thomas is a lot more subtle with it, and that almost makes it more chilling. Because, like, there are moments where you genuinely could believe that, like, oh, she's not that bad. So then whenever it does come back around. Um, and I also think that that helps in making the second Mrs. DeWinter not seem like quite such an idiot. Yeah. Um, you know, she's naive, but she's not stupid. Like, she has a good reason to think that, like, oh, maybe she's actually won her over. Um and I, I don't know. I really love Kristen Scott Thomas's performance. It's um. Oh, she's the best of the cast for me, hands yeah, down. Yeah, for sure. Quieter. So good. Yeah, it's quieter than I think some people might have expected, but I think that's why it works so well. I, and she's I like able to that she so much. She didn't go for camp. Mm-hmm. No. And I really appreciate that. I, I was saying this to because someone was asking me like, is is she fun? Is she so good? I'm like, she's not so much like it's not that kind of performance she is just styling her own personal like performance style up to 11 and mm-hmm. it's a different kind of exaggerated performance than i think anyone was expecting from it yeah it's not like michelle pfeiffer and french exit like yeah. levels of delicious camp yeah. it's more of a poised sharp and really deceptive performance where to nicole's point you know, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but if I took one look at this woman in real life, I'd be like, red flags everywhere. <laughs> Why are you looking at me like that all the time? Why do you have, like, no flexion in your voice with any sense of empathy or emotion? <laughs> yeah. Who are you? But I understand that for the purposes of this movie and for the story that they're telling, it works in that regard. And I think that Kristen Scott Thomas pulls it off very, very well. Yeah, I love, like, when we first see her and she's looking towards the camera and she's, like, completely stone-faced. Like, she almost looks mad. And then when she meets Mrs. DeWinter, like, a few seconds later, she, like, smiles at her like she's greeting, like, a friend or something. And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) You got a big storm coming. (laughs) You know who's the unsung hero of this cast, though, in my opinion? I love Ann Dowd as Miss Van Hopper so much. (laughs) She's 
so deliciously tacky. <laughs> I, I said to Nicole while I was watching, I'm like, she is basically doing an American version of Hyacinth Bucket from Keeping Up Appearances. <laughs> and that is perfect. And I don't think I ever would have thought of that. So, like, yes, congratulations. She, and <laughs> She's everything I could ever want in this role. And I also think that, like, seeing her goes a long ways towards understanding the main character in terms of, like, how um, sort of subservient she is in many ways. And Meek is that, like, yeah, anyone who'd spent any amount of time with that woman would probably end up like that. Um like, I, I love Anne Dowden this so freaking much. I think, honestly, the whole supporting cast, like, Sam Riley, Kristen Scott Thomas, Anne Dowd, they're all really fantastic. And can I say that I thought, I thought Lily James was actually really good. And I say that, like, with all due respect to the uh, hair, makeup, and costume teams who managed to make her look... Um, for lack of a better word, middle class pretty, <laughs> as opposed to like, you know, sh- the world class beauty that she is. <laughs> like they played it down just enough to buy that Maxim would be attracted to her, but that she is still not of his world. And they do that constantly throughout the movie, just making her seem out of place with her yeah. surroundings in terms of the colors and styles of clothing that she wears um, in her performance, in her posture and how she moves throughout spaces. And the one time that she looks like she belongs is when she makes her grand entrance at the ball, which is when everything just like goes completely to shit for her. Still, still, still just as cringy. Yeah. And and that makes it more cringy because they've so emphasized the, how out of place she is all the time. And the one time where she feels like she's actually belongs and is a part of this scene, it turns out to have been the worst mistake they managed to take Lily James, a person I would never describe as mousy, yes. and make her seem <laughs> mousy. Like, and a lot of it I do think is that hair. That hair. Um, oh, and the costumes that they put her in. But I really do think she does a very good job of sort of embodying that and making a character who, like, you honestly believe that, like, if she broke something, she'd just, like, hide it in the back of the desk. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I think that this character isn't the easiest character um, and she does a very good job of crafting her. And she also has, like, much better chemistry with Army Hammer than I expected, which goes a long way in terms of making you understand why she would sort of throw away everything about her life to marry him. What is she throwing away? <laughs> well, I mean, she literally has no idea really who this guy is. And is like, sure, yeah. I'll marry him. She doesn't need to. He comes from money. <laughs> I mean... Supposed, like she doesn't. She's never seen his house. She doesn't know anyone who knows. I'm just him. saying it's a, it's a different time where if you know, regardless of appearances or even personality, or if the marriage is good, if somebody had money, you married that person. I mean, yes, but like, there's also weird rumors swirling about him and the ex-wife. So like, sure, it's a bit of a which rip. is why, like I was mentioning before, that first act might be the best of the entire movie because Ben Wheatley gets us to actually care about that relationship and establishes that it is a loving relationship despite this roadblock in Maxim's uh, past that is preventing him from uh, being the perfect lover that, you know, obviously the ending of this movie uh, (laughs) says that he, that he probably is. I think that they do a really good job because, you know, Rebecca is a gothic romance and inspiration for it was taken largely from Jane Eyre, which is similarly a story about, you know, class and a woman trying to find her place in the world, but Mm. also a romance. And I think that this version of Rebecca does a lot better at selling both parts of that story than the Hitchcock adaptation does. And that you genuinely believe in this romance, even though, you know, it's kind of twisted. Um, But like, that's, I mean, that's the cornerstone of a Gothic romance. So here's what I want to know. I'm actually, I want to hear this from everybody. What does the Hitchcock film do that is better than this version? Direction. (laughs) Just overall, the direction is better. Yeah, direction, performances, um, it's way more gay, 
yeah. I think there's a better sense of mystery and ambiguity, and I think it might possibly yeah. have to do with the weed shot, but I think there's more of a an uncertainty, whereas this, I, I feel like it is more clear that there is deception taking place, if that makes sense. You know, it's a choice that I wish this movie would have committed to a bit more in terms of some more of its... Uh, ghost story elements was I really wish that this movie embraced silence a bit more, mm. especially during some of those scenes that take place at night when she's walking through uh, Manderley. And I say this because there was a real opportunity to actually make this at times a spooky, unnerving potential ghost story. Um, not saying it had to be a horror film by any means whatsoever, but every scene that is supposed to be coming off as somewhat uh, spooky is always kind of undercut by the fact that the score is playing or if there's something going on with the sound design. And I really think that this movie, when you're in a big, big mansion, unknown house, the scariest thing in the world can be the stillness of it. And yeah. those little creaks and things that you hear and you're then wondering, was that someone? Was it a mouse? Was it something else? Mm -hmm. And I think that there was a missed opportunity there to lean more into some more of the gothic horror element. That's a good yes. point. Um, the one thing that one of the things that I really liked that they added that was not even in the novel is Maxim's sleepwalking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to talk about that. There was there was such an opportunity there to really make those scenes. Uh, you know, have that that texture that you were talking about, Matt, and they didn't really go there. I mean, granted, when you have that Clint Manziel score, I, I don't blame you for wanting to just have it playing all the time because it's fucking gorgeous. But yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the film is the sleepwalking, like especially when Kristen just like pops up behind her and the like freak on her face. Yeah. Oh my like, god. Yes. That reminded me of the original. I think there's a shot of Judith with like a light kind of going across her face like that. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah. Cause think about like how much it could have played more into uh the main character's anxiety. And also her paranoia of wanting to fit into this society that there are not just actual people that are preventing her from uh, getting assimilated into the society, but otherworldly elements that are also pulling her away from being fully integrated into this. Like, I really do feel like when you guys mentioned the direction, I, I genuinely feel that like Ben Wheatley missed a pretty, pretty good opportunity there to really uh, make some choices that could have actually have benefited the themes and the story. I agree. Yeah. Add some texture. Yeah. I think the thing that I really don't like about this movie is the editing. Mm -hmm. um, especially in the beginning, uh, we kind of get these like flashes of the characters before the story really starts. And I was like, oh, wow, they've made some choices here. Okay. Um, and it was not a good foot to start off on. But as it goes on and these um, these semi-dream sequences that uh, the narrator has continue and I just don't – I don't think they're well integrated into the movie. And it's that repeated shot of Lily James sleeping and like shaking her head from side mm -hmm. to side as she's having a nightmare <laughs> is such a cliche <laughs> and not one that this film has – any idea of what to do with, unlike a lot of the other cliches that it's playing with. Also, too, I thought the song choice of Let No Man Steal Your Time by Pentacle or P Pentangle uh, was uh, a choice, once again. Yeah. I don't know if we needed a uh, modern song in this movie yeah. necessarily. Choices were made. be all over again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was more like, and a lot of these choices, some of the things. I was more okay with like in the ballroom scene because like that is sort of where that character falls apart. So some of the like bold things that happened there, I was like, all right, this makes sense. Like it should feel overwhelming. Um, but whenever there's some of those choices were made elsewhere, I was like, mm, it's, I, I could have lived without that. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I want to just reiterate though, that I actually think Lily James is quite good in this. I don't think she's great, but I think she does exactly what the role calls on her to do. And I thought she did a pretty decent job of it. I mean, I was really sympathetic towards her and I thought she was 
an intriguing main character to take us along uh, the story with, even though we know how the story goes. I agree with that. I didn't get to say earlier, and I, I'm gonna, I might be the outlier here. I do not think Army Hammer is good in this film. One, I Iota. agree. I thought he was awful. I thought the <laughs> accent made his voice very oddly flat, almost as though he were dubbed. And it just, I, I just, I, I'm not a huge fan of his, but I thought this was a particularly bad performance. So I just wanted to put that out there. Fair. Any other uh, final thoughts, uh, Dan? What about you? <laughs> Regarding Army Hammer, he was a lot better than I thought he was going to be when the casting was announced. I will say that. Same. Um, not that Same. I think he's great, but yeah. No. Just in the end, I just think this is um, it is a marvel of production design, I think especially. I think everything in Rebecca's quarters Every not just like the design, but like every scene that takes place there, I think is really, really well done. Um, most of, if not all, the best things of the movie uh, take place there. I think Kristen Scott Thomas is is so good in in the choices she makes in this performance, and I just wish that. I think that my biggest problem with the movie is that it's too long. It's over two, just over two hours, I think, and it feels every bit of that length. But that said, I still liked it. I still was, I still, still found myself engrossed in the story, and I think particularly in the characters. I think that that's one of the things that makes me like this a little better than the Hitchcock is that I feel a lot more for Lily James, certainly than I did for Joan Fontaine. Sorry. I just think she's a, she, she does well in that performance, but I think in her and Hitchcock's hands, that character is such a drip and just a nothing. (laughs) And whereas here, Lily James really imbues her with personality and I think that's really important to get us involved in this story. And I really, really liked that. Um, that's blasphemy, Dan. <laughs> sorry about it. Like, hashtag sorry, not sorry. I, I like a lot of things in Hitchcock's Rebecca. Joan Fontaine is not one of them. I, I understand. <laughs> I, I agree with that completely, Dan. I also think, like, in, in the Alfred Hitchcock, you can tell that uh, Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine were not uh, vibing. <laughs> Let's say you, you yeah. can feel that Laurence Olivier was still very mad that Vivian Lee had not been cast. Um, Which and I think that works in his favor, right? But not yeah. always. And I think yeah. in this version, you you really do buy the relationship between them a lot more. Um, and I agree with you about Lily. I also just have to say that my f- maybe my favorite scene in the whole thing is the first time that they have breakfast together, um, and she yeah. orders oysters. <laughs> oysters. Because it's such a nice little way to show us just how out of place she is in this world. Like, she's just like, I wanted to try them. (laughs) Like, and it's so weirdly endearing, but also at the same time, you're like, oh, honey, no. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that really is what the film does best, is show this story about this, you know, let's call her lower middle class girl who gets thrust into this life and doesn't know how to handle it and certainly doesn't realize what she signed up for. I I do want to say in defense of the original, which is a weird stance to take, um, (laughs) the, I agree that the chemistry between Olivier and Fontaine is maybe not as warm as it could or should have been. I do think individually they give much stronger performances. And at the end of the day, I think that's what I would take. Um, Overall, though, there's there's so many little things in this version that I think could have worked on paper that don't come to fruition. And for me, that that is frustrating. I come out sort of uh, if it had just been sort of a rehash of things. Uh, I think I would have written it off, but it's almost more frustrating that there was potential for something that I thought could have been unique. All right. Uh, I want to hear from Sarah. What final thoughts do you have, Sarah? Um, I, my final thought is really just a question to everybody. Mm -hmm. Is anyone else getting kind of tired of watching movies shot in Hatfield house? Like, (laughs) 
How many times no, am I gonna never. have to like <laughs> I was gonna be say, the same like, hey, we know hallway with that checkered now. floor? You know what I mean? If if every film was shot in Hatfield House, I'd be thrilled. <laughs> I get it's it though. For gothic romance. No, no, no. I I fully, fully, fully get it. I I do, Sarah. There's this shot in Rebecca, like the library scene. Mm-hmm. They kind of walk through the library. I'm like, oh, this is where like. Um, Rachel Weiss and Olivia Coleman made out and Emma was just lurking in the corner like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> I think in that regard sometimes like I, I was thinking about this afterwards and I was you know considering on a first viewing saying you know oh yeah like costume production design contender I actually do think that the production design is not as strong as a, of a contender as we probably thought it was and even maybe after initially watching the movie because i think on a repeat the production design although it is good to your point sarah there might be too many people who have this idea of well we've seen this before and so i don't know if that's gonna get it uh the nomination but we'll talk about its oscar prospects uh in a little bit more detail in a bit here daniel did you have any other final thoughts or Uh, i don't think so I, i i think i said everything all right nicole you good or i'm good all righty I guess really uh, the last thing I'll just reiterate uh, here once again is I, I think that Lily James does a really good job here as uh, Mrs. DeWest. I mean, I mean, DeWinter. Um, <laughs> I really, really cannot stand Sam Riley, even though I do agree that his casting as this type of character is perfect. Kristen Scott Thomas steals the movie for me. Army Hammer, better than expected, but definitely the weak link of the main three. And Dowd, a gem. Love her. And... Hi, Ben Crompton. I miss you from Game of Thrones. It was lovely seeing you. <laughs> but overall, the movie, I think for me, just once again, I I still have trouble. And Nicole, you put up a really, really good defense here. I really just have trouble uh, with it justifying its existence, mostly because it is a Best Picture winner. And that to me is like, you just sh- you just shouldn't touch it. Like, and I, 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 I reluctantly agree with a lot of the of the points that you said, Nicole. I really do, <laughs> but I do think we should be encouraging the youth of today to watch an eighty year old movie instead of giving them a new one for today. Even if I understand uh, the filmmaking restrictions have been lifted for this version and they can tell a more true adaptation, it's like. Grapes of Wrath didn't win Best Picture that year. Let's do a remake of Grapes of Wrath, you know? I mean... I've seen so many people going back to watch the Hitchcock after watching this or to prep mm. for watching this that I actually think that it's not... In, you know, in, in any way, shape, or form, I don't think it's trying to replace it. I think it's actually uh, encouraging people to watch that, which is good. Or why not make a movie about the feud between Selznick and Hitchcock in the making of Rebecca so that this way you don't necessarily have these comparisons from a movie that people hold up as holier than thou that inevitably, even before your film is seen, are going to hurt the movie. And people are going to just have these unfair expectations but preconceived notions. The movie is just setting itself up for failure, I think, when it is working off of something that... Whether you like the movie or not, a Best Picture Oscar win should mean something. And it should mean, don't ever fucking touch this. This movie deserves to be put in a vault somewhere. It doesn't mean that to a lot of people, though, unfortunately, Matt. I I do agree with you in a lot of ways. But but people don't. They don't hold things in as high regard, whether they should or not. I, Matt, also, like, I just need to say, uh, bad Matt for making me remember <laughs> the existence of Hitchcock and the girl. Damn. <laughs> the what? I forgot about that as well. <laughs> is this a movie? It is about Who's Hitchcock and Tippi Hedren, played by Sienna Miller. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. sounds interesting. <laughs> that is a good word for it, Sarah. <laughs> I think it was um, who 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 was it? It was Sienna Miller. You said, and it was Toby Jones, wasn't it? Because he got comparisons to um, yeah. 
uh, to Anthony Hopkins when he played Hitchcock. Because yeah, I Jones. will say the makeup on Toby Jones was a lot better than the makeup on Hopkins. Yeah. Toby Jones is always the second guy. I remember he played Truman Capote <laughs> right after Hoffman. Yeah. It's the weirdest trend. <laughs> All right. My grade for Rebecca. First viewing, and I said this to Nicole, I was actually like a week seven. Latest viewing, no. Um, I've downgraded to a six uh, since then. I still overall enjoy the movie and do think it was better than expected. But once again, I think that even and I wanted to rewatch it again just to see how it would hold up because I saw it for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And it it really is not a movie that I think can stand the test of time. I think it's a good talking point for right now, but the Hitchcock version is still the definitive version as far as I'm concerned. Danilo, what about you? Uh, I think I'm going to be the lowest here. I'm going to go with a three. Woo! I don't think this is a, a very good movie. I think there were kernels that were there to maybe make it a better movie, but they uh, they didn't they didn't turn into popcorn. They stayed kernels for me, and uh, that's just it, it's on that regard. It's a failure. So. Three out of ten. Dan Bear. Uh, I am at a seven. It's really good, but there are some issues with it. Sarah? I'm a five. Okay. Nicole? I'm also a seven. I've watched it twice already. I imagine I'll probably watch it again, probably multiple times. Um, I like this movie. It's not everything that it could have been, but it has enough good in it uh, for me to give it a seven. And as I mentioned before, in terms of its Oscar potential, I remember uh, being told fairly early on, and I mean, this was really, really early, I'm talking before we saw any real material for this film at all, um, to be told to watch out for its costumes, and I think that that is holding true right now. I think if this movie gets a single Oscar nomination, it will be for its costume design. Frickin' mustard suit and all, people, okay? (laughs) I don't care. I do not care. I do think that those costumes are pretty wonderful. Uh, But production design is on the table. And I wish score could be on the table, but I do not trust Academy voters to care enough. Oh, God, I really hope so. I love that score so much. I, I really just don't think that it's something that they typically like to go for anymore nowadays is that type of score. The Academy seems to be leaning more towards... Um, scores that have a unique quality to them that like you know you feel like you haven't ever heard a score like this before I'm of course thinking of something like Mm -hmm. you know Joker or the social network Mm. and you know Menzel's score is traditional but it is really beautiful and really great to listen to on its own regardless of that yeah I I hope that that can get some love this coming award season i think clint menzel as far as awards go is a little underrated actually oh highly Uh, so i would really like that to be nominated do i think it will probably not but only because i think when nomination time rolls comes around this movie's profile is going to be relatively low uh for me the the most striking thing about the movie is the costume and production design and i would hope those get recognized too yeah, I, that's exactly how I yeah. feel, Dan. Mm-hmm. Like, there are things in it that certainly will make my ballot, production design, costume design, and score. I really do think costume design is its best chance at the Oscars. I really wish that Kristen Scott Thomas would have delivered a performance that I would have, like, been able to say, yeah, she's solidly in the five. But unfortunately, it's missing just a little bit more punch to it to make her stand out in a more memorable way against some of the heavy hitters that we will see in this upcoming, uh, well, not upcoming, but this current award season right now. So it's a good performance, the best in the movie. And I think I have her at literally number 10 in my predictions, but I don't anticipate her to rise at all. Yeah. I, I really like her in the movie. I I don't think that it's a performance that will last to the end of the season. I think there are going to be more, you know, flashy contenders. Yeah, come it's not jaw-dropping work. Films. Yeah, it's really good. It's, it is. I really like every, all the choices she made, and I think she's fantastic, but I don't think it's going to last throughout the yeah. season. 
No Best Picture nomination for Rebecca 2020. History will not repeat itself. <laughs> no. But Ben Wheatley's going to make The Mag 2. Which could score Best Picture nom, right? Best case scenario, guys? We all know the truth. <laughs> At the Razzies. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, you know, the Satellite Awards. Oh, God. All right. Anyway, Sarah, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me at Mildred's Fierce on Twitter. Danilo? You can find me on Twitter at Danilo S. Castro. Dan Bear? You can find me on Twitter at Danson Dan on Film. And Nicole? I am at Nicole Ackman 16. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Rebecca here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player, FM, Acast, CastBox, also on SoundCloud and Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. Write us a comment. Rate us five stars. It helps for us to get discovered by other people out there. Really, really appreciate that. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always. We shall see you all next time. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.